Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your host with all the latest mental health related news, bringing you everything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to rid yourself of bad habits, how to improve your relationships, and how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into potential new treatments for mental illness and insights into its causes. Along the way, trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment for it, and trying to better educate the general public about mental health issues. All that brought to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. Welcome back to this podcast, which was pre-recorded for initial airing on January 18th, 2017. Uh, <clears throat> hope your new year is going well thus far. Starting out tonight, an article uh, that documents something that uh, psychiatrists have known about for a really long time. Well, it doesn't really document it, it discusses it, brings the issue to the forefront, and maybe for the general public is uh, a little bit of information, scary though it might be, but something I think those who suffer from depression and those who have loved ones who suffer from depression and anxiety and other disorders should be aware of, especially if uh, there have been issues in terms of struggling to find the right medications to treat those disorders, even though there are about a dozen or more out there already. Uh, there are no new antidepressant medications in sight, despite the growing need. Um, experts have finally come out in a public way and express what we psychiatrists have talked about at meetings for a long time. What I mean is when we go to academic meetings to learn about developments in treating depression and uh, using antidepressants to help our patients, lots of times the speaker will say, you know, you better get used to what you have and get real good at using it because there's nothing new as far as antidepressant medications coming down the pike for quite some time. Uh, and you might say, well, is there really that big a need? Since, as I just said uh, before, there's about a dozen things or more out there already. Well, unfortunately, yes, uh, there is still a growing need. Um, as much as it sounds like there are, are a lot of antidepressant medications already on the market, and, and surely any patient with depression or anxiety, because we also use them to treat anxiety, should be able to find something that helps them feel better. Uh, very sadly, unfortunately, that's not always the case. And according to the experts, it is likely to be at least 10 more years before any new generation of antidepressants comes to market, despite evidence that the actual rates of suffering from depression and anxiety are continuing to increase across the world. The article goes into 
some of the reasons why this is the case. The depression drug pipeline has run dry partly due to a failure of science, according to one of the experts, but also due to the large pharmaceutical companies pulling investment out of research and development in the neuroscience field because the profit potential is uncertain. And while that sounds uh, just very evil on the part of the drug companies, uh, you know, let's face it, they're a business, they're entitled to make a profit, but again, there are reasons why in this particular field of developing medications, the profit potential is so uncertain, and the article goes into some of them. Uh, according to Guy Goodwin, a professor of psychiatry at the University of Oxford, uh, who spoke to reporters at a London briefing, uh, this was uh, last Wednesday, he said, I'd be very surprised if we were to see any new drugs for depression in the next decade. The pharmaceutical industry is simply not investing in the research because it can't make money from these drugs. It's a lot of money to spend, and there's a high rate of failure. Now, such risk aversion to trying to develop and bring these drugs to the market on the part of the drug companies was understandable given uncertain returns and the approximately billion-dollar cost of developing and bringing a new drug to market. Now, I might, you might very well say, what, a billion? That's chump change to some of these big international corporations. And you're right, but there are still other issues. Treatment for depression usually involves either medication, some form of psychotherapy, or a combination of both. But up to half of all people treated fail to get better with first-line antidepressants, and around a third of patients are resistant to relevant medications. The experts said that since the current generation of antidepressants, including the SSRIs, uh, the SSRI stands for Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors, and then there's also the SNRIs, a slight variation, Serotonin Norepinephrine Reuptake Inhibitors, um, since these are widely available as cheaper generics, there is reluctance among health services to fund expensive new drugs that may not be much better. And this is partly because existing medications, while by no means perfect, are quite effective in more than half of the patients, and partly because in this condition in particular, that is depression, Placebo can have a massive impact. That makes it difficult to show that a new drug is working above and beyond a positive placebo response and also above and beyond an already effective generation of available drugs. Now, um, the article doesn't go into this issue in detail, but let me just reiterate what I've talked about on the podcast in the past. First of all, in all of medical research, the placebo effect, that is, uh, someone taking an inert substance that has no therapeutic value, yet reporting they feel better anyway, that effect is no greater 
in all the medical research than in psychiatric drug trials. There is something so powerful about just the idea that taking a medication is going to help your mood and your emotions feel better, that it works more often than not, unfortunately. Um, <clears throat> but don't think that's the only time you see a placebo effect in all of medical research. Uh, that would also not be true. Uh, there is a placebo effect in trials to treat pain, and this uh, was proven again just recently. There's also a placebo effect that has been observed in treating high blood pressure. That's right, people taking a placebo and their blood pressure comes down. <laughs> Pretty good placebo, huh? Well, the other thing is that having participated as a primary and as a secondary investigator in some psychiatric drug trials myself, I can tell you that the other reason those placebos work darn well a lot of the time is that subjects in clinical research trials for psychiatric drugs have very powerful incentives to report <clears throat> that whatever they're taking, drug or placebo, because they don't know, is working well. Why do I say that? Well, if they report that it's working well, that they're feeling better, they get to stay in the trial. If they report that what they're taking is not working well, that's it. They're dropped from the trial, and they lose the incentives for being in the trial, like regular contact with caring health professionals who do things like free physical exams, free blood work, and also remuneration for their participation in the trial, including possibly reimbursement for their transportation to and from the research center. So there really needs to be reform in the way the trials are conducted to get rid of the placebo effect as such a powerful influence, um, which in turn makes it very hard to get the investigational drug to show whether it's truly better or not than a placebo, which in turn makes it less likely that the drug company will invest billions of dollars in developing it if uh, it's so hard to get it to work better than a placebo. And if they don't do that, they can't get the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, to approve their drug as a treatment and therefore, they decide, hey, you know, all this R&D money isn't worth it. We're getting out of psychiatric drug trials. Uh, I mentioned the Food and Drug Administration. They're another player in this drama as to why we don't have any new antidepressant medications in the pipeline and won't have them anytime soon. Uh, why do I say that? Well, it's because the FDA plays a large role in how the drug companies design the clinical trials. Uh, they have a certain expectation of what they want to see as far as how a clinical trial was designed and what data uh, are going to convince them that a drug is an effective treatment for depression or anxiety, what have you. Um, and so the drug companies are merely following what they know to be the FDA's recipe. They're uh, preordained expectations, and uh, it's, as I've just outlined, it's increasingly difficult to get an investigational drug 
to meet those criteria. So this is how we're in this situation. And uh, depression is already one of the most common forms of mental illness, affecting more than 350 million people worldwide, ranking it as the leading cause of disability globally, according to the World Health Organization. And so we definitely do need more treatments, and the fact that we should not expect any for the next 10 years is quite frightening, in my opinion. And uh, the rates of depression are rising, um, so things are only going to get more difficult. All right, we have to take our first commercial break. We'll come back with more on this issue and then get into other mental health issues. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Understanding health insurance is becoming more challenging. If you currently have insurance you've probably noticed that it costs more to see your doctor. And if you're able to keep your doctor, it takes longer to get an appointment. The bad news is this trend is projected to continue. Your costs will likely continue to rise, while your health care choice and access will continue to fall. The good news is Peachtree ENT Center has the answer to this problem. We believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. We are committed to working with you and we specialize in providing affordable care for patients without insurance, those who are underinsured, and those with high deductibles or catastrophic coverage, and we offer same-day appointments. You no longer have to choose between staying healthy and paying bills because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news, getting back to our discussion about how experts have told the general public what we psychiatrists have known for quite some time. There are not any new antidepressant drugs coming out anytime soon, perhaps not within another decade. Uh, Data for England are showing a doubling in prescriptions for antidepressants in a decade, uh, 61 million in 2015 from 31 million in 2005. And here in the United States, too, more people than ever are taking antidepressants. A study in the Journal of the American Medical Association in 2015 found that prevalence of depression or, and taking antidepressants, rather, almost doubled from 1999 to 2012, rising from 13 to 6 point, I'm sorry, rising to 13 from 6.9%. 
Yet several major drug companies, including GlaxoSmithKline, who invented Welbutrin, and AstraZeneca, who brought us Seroquel, which is not an antidepressant but used as an add-on when someone's taking antidepressants and still depressed, uh, they have scaled back on neuroscience R&D in recent years, citing unfavorable risk-reward prospects. Um, and again, Dr. Goodwin uh, from University of Oxford said the absence of a drug development pipeline was also due to lagging scientific research into what is really happening in the brains of those who do and do not respond to current antidepressants. He said it's partly a failure of science, to be frank. Scientists have to get more of an understanding about how these things actually work before we can then propose ways to improve them. Well, uh, I, I agree with what he's saying. That's true. But on the other hand, I still think that there are reforms that are needed uh, downstream from the basic science. Uh, in other words, uh, so once scientists do gain more insights into what's causing depression and uh, looking at potential chemicals that will correct these defects, uh, there needs to be reforms in the process of getting these trials done, prove that the drugs work, and getting them to market. Um, it takes too long, it's too difficult, and even if scientists did do more of this basic research, uh, there's still not enough incentives for the drug companies to put the time and attention into the trials. So what's to be done as an alternative? Well, I'm happy to report that not all is lost. Um, they may not be getting as much attention, uh, but there are people in academic research centers who continue to look into these issues. And while they look uh, to private donors and foundations and maybe their universities' endowments to support their research instead of big drug company profits, um, or uh, perhaps the government as well might support the research. Um, if they are able to find a compound that is effective and safe, uh, then they are tending to say, all right, well, now we've got to patent it and sell it um, or you know, somehow find a company to help us develop it and bring it to market. So there, there are other ways uh, for new drugs to come on board other than the drug companies develop themselves. And in fact, um, we've seen this from one of the big drug companies. Um, <clears throat> they're now called Allergan Pharmaceuticals, who bought Actavis Pharmaceuticals, who bought Forest Pharmaceuticals. And Forest was the company who brought us Celexa and Lexapro, and then later Vibrid and Fetsima. But rather than follow the pattern of other drug companies who put uh, hundreds of millions or, or dozens of billions into developing a drug, they will buy the patent or buy the company who developed 
another drug if they spot a good candidate. So there are still ways that new drugs can come to market. Uh, hopefully, the prediction of Dr. Goodwin and his colleagues will not come true, meaning that it will not take another 10 years. All right, next up on psychiatry today. We all know that stress is a risk factor for heart disease and stroke. This is not news. This has been a well-known thing for decades. But scientists have now determined what exactly are the links between stress and how it causes heart disease and stroke. And it, the clues have to do with a structure in the brain known as the amygdala. The amygdala is, uh, for lack of a better way of describing it, the fear center of our brain. It's very important structure in terms of ascribing emotional aspects to fearful stimuli. And if it is overreactive, you're going to be much more prone to anxiety and stress. And it turns out, not coincidentally, that heightened activity in the amygdala is associated with a greater risk of heart disease and stroke. This study was published in the journal The Lancet, and it provides new insights into the possible mechanism by which stress can lead to cardiovascular disease in humans. While more research and larger studies are needed to confirm the mechanism, the researchers suggest that these findings could eventually lead to new ways to target and treat stress-related cardiovascular risk. Smoking, high blood pressure, and diabetes are well-known risk factors for cardiovascular disease and chronic psychosocial stress could also be a risk factor. Previously, animal studies identified a link between stress and higher activity in the bone marrow and arteries, but it has remained unclear whether this also applies to humans. Other research has also shown that the amygdala is more active in people with post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety, and depression, but before this study, no research had identified the region of the brain that links stress to the risk of heart attack and stroke. In this study, 293 patients were given a combined PET and CT scan to record their brain, bone marrow, and spleen activity and inflammation in their arteries. The patients were then tracked for an average of 3.7 years to see if they developed cardiovascular disease. In this time, 22 patients had cardiovascular events, including heart attack, angina, heart failure, stroke, and peripheral arterial disease. Those with higher amygdala activity had a greater risk of subsequent cardiovascular disease and developed problems sooner than those with lower activity. The researchers also found that the heightened activity in the amygdala was linked to increased bone marrow activity and inflammation in the arteries and suggest that this may cause the increased cardiovascular risk. The authors suggest a possible biological mechanism whereby the amygdala 
signals to the bone marrow to produce extra white blood cells, which in turn act on the arteries, causing them to develop plaques and become inflamed, which can cause heart attack and stroke. In a small sub-study, 13 patients who had a history of PTSD also had their stress levels assessed by a psychologist, underwent a PET scan, and had their levels of C-reactive protein, a protein that indicates levels of inflammation in the body, measured. Those who reported the highest levels of stress had the highest levels of amygdala activity, along with more signs of inflammation in their blood and the walls of their arteries. The results provide a unique insight into how stress may lead to cardiovascular disease. This raises the possibility that reducing stress could produce benefits that extend beyond an improved sense of psychological well-being. Eventually, chronic stress could be treated as an important risk factor for cardiovascular disease, which is routinely screened for and effectively managed like other major cardiovascular disease risk factors. The researchers note that the activity seen in the amygdala may contribute to heart disease through additional mechanisms, since the extra white blood cell production and inflammation in the arteries do not account for the full link. They also say that more research is needed to confirm that stress causes this chain of events as the study was relatively small. In the past decade, more and more individuals experience psychosocial stress on a daily basis. Heavy workloads, job insecurity, or living in poverty are circumstances that can result in chronically increased stress, which in turn can lead to chronic psychological disorders such as depression. More research is needed to confirm the mechanism, but these clinical data establish a connection between stress and cardiovascular disease thus identifying chronic stress as a true risk factor for acute cardiovascular syndromes, which could, given the increasing number of individuals with chronic stress, be included in risk assessments of cardiovascular disease in daily clinical practice. Well, uh, again, just using brain research to explore uh, how to mitigate the risk for cardiovascular disease, uh, showing again the links between the brain and the rest of the body and how uh, research into psychological symptoms such as stress uh, benefits treatment of disease of the body in general, uh, not just that of uh, mental illness. We'll be back with more of Psychiatry Today after this commercial break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott. Be right back. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. 
The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps. These are generally benign growths that occur from chronic sinus infection or allergies that are either undertreated or have not been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery and correction of a deviated nasal septum and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office. We use a state-of-the-art equipment so that you can see the problem. You will be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment. We believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. You can rest assured that all options will be offered before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, bringing you all the latest mental health-related news. And next up on tonight's podcast, an item about college student mental health. And when I saw this article, I thought, well, it's mid-January, and uh, there probably are a lot of you out there who have your children about to go back to college for the spring semester if they haven't gone back yet already. So this is certainly a timely issue. Uh, There is an annual report that examines the state of college student mental health, and there is cause for concern. Despite increased demand for counseling centers on college campuses, students aren't necessarily getting sicker. Instead, it's likely student mental health needs across the country have increased due to national prevention and awareness efforts over the past decade. Uh, According to Ben Locke, the executive director of the Center for Collegiate Mental Health at Penn State University, the results we are seeing are the outcomes we would expect to see from suicide prevention efforts over the last decade. He went on to say, we've been asked if students are sicker today And this doesn't seem to be supported by the data. Over the last six years, the rate at which students report prior mental health treatment has not increased, 
but with communities being primed to say, that's a problem, let's find you help, more students are being referred. In response to growing demand, university counseling centers also have experienced operational changes over the last six years. They are providing 28% more rapid access service hours per client and 7.6% fewer routine service hours per client, with more resources going into rapid access services, first-time and emergency appointments, the counseling center's routine treatment capacities are likely being impacted, especially when funding is flat. Counseling centers always make sure to provide emergency services in a short time period, that's their priority, but moving forward, counseling centers need to ensure students in need, and not just those experiencing a crisis, get follow-up treatment to heal. Uh, comparing this scenario to other forms of health care, if you have strep throat and go into a health center, they won't tell you to come back in two weeks because they're fully booked, and they won't give you half a prescription you'll get a full prescription for the medication you need. These are some of the findings in the 2016 Center for Collegiate Mental Health Annual Report, the largest and most comprehensive report on college students seeking mental health treatment to date. A sample of other findings include counseling centers are evaluating and managing increased numbers of students who may also represent threat to self, trends in students' thoughts or actions related to harming others continue to be infrequent, anxiety and depression continue to be the most common presenting concerns for college students as identified by counseling center staff. The report describes 150,483 unique college students seeking mental health treatment, 3,419 clinicians, and more than 1,034,510 appointments from the 2015 to 2016 academic year. This is the eighth year the report has been produced. And if you're interested, the full report can be found online at ccmh.psu.edu forward slash publications. Now, I think it's important to note here that, uh, you know, a take-home point from this is it's not that college students' mental health is deteriorating. Uh, I think to me the, the message is um, there is better ability on the part of colleges to identify students who have needs and uh, that in turn has grown along with uh, the services becoming more available to meet those needs. Uh, so there really isn't more of uh, demand uh, than there was before. It's just that there's more uh, people and facilities available to meet that demand. Um, which uh, overall is good news, but again, uh, cause for concern um, in that there still may be some campuses where it's difficult for students to get 
the help that they need. And college can be a very, very stressful time. Um, it may be a time when someone who already has had mental health problems is at risk uh, for a relapse or a worsening episode. And also, it may be a time when someone who, because of genetics from family history or other factors such as substance abuse, is vulnerable to their first episode of a type of psychiatric problem. So either way, it's good news that colleges are paying more attention to the mental health issues of their students. Next up, we turn our attention again to the issue of maternal depression in pregnant women. Um, you know, we've talked about this subject many times, mostly in the context of weighing the safety and risks of pregnant women taking antidepressants to treat or to prevent anxiety or depression, uh, weighing the benefits of the woman having good mental health and the benefits of that for the developing fetus and the newborn infant against the potential risks to the unborn fetus of having a mental health problem uh, and uh, also the risks to the fetus of the medications. Now, this latest study finds a potential biomarker for pregnant women linking uh, the outcome of the marker to depression or low fetal birth weight. Um, if this could be confirmed and uh, you know potentially developed as a, a new laboratory investigatory test, perhaps this would help women make the decision as to whether and what type of treatment they need for depression during their pregnancy. Depression is very common during pregnancy with as many as one in seven women suffering from the illness and more than a half a million women impacted by postpartum depression in the United States alone. The disorder not only affects the mother's mood, but has also been linked to influencing the newborn's development. And it turns out that lower blood levels of a biomarker called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, or BDNF, have been associated with depression in multiple studies, mainly in non-pregnant adults, but now in a study published in the journal Psychoneuroendocrinology, research from Ohio State University found that BDNF levels change during pregnancy and can cause depression in the mother and low birth weight in the baby. The research shows BDNF levels change considerably across pregnancy and provide predictive value for depressive symptoms in women as well as poor fetal growth. It's notable that they observed a significant difference in BDNF in women of different races. Researchers took blood serum samples during and after pregnancy from 139 women and observed that BDNF levels dropped considerably from the first through the third trimesters and subsequently increased at postpartum. 
Overall, black women exhibited significantly higher BDNF than white women during the perinatal period. Controlling for race, lower BDNF levels at both the second and third trimesters predicted greater depressive symptoms in the third trimester. In addition, women delivering low versus healthy weight infants showed significantly lower BDNF in the third trimester, but didn't differ in depressive symptoms at any point during pregnancy, which suggests separate effects. The good news is there are some good ways to address the issue. Antidepressant medications have been shown to increase BDNF levels, but clearly, this, while this may be appropriate for some pregnant women, it is not without potential risks and side effects. Luckily, another very effective way to increase BDNF levels is through exercise. With approval from one's physician, staying physically active during pregnancy can help maintain BDNF levels, which has benefits for a woman's mood as well as for their baby's development. So there you have it, a potential biomarker to look for signs of maternal depression which could potentially prevent low fetal birth weight. Uh, and again, I think it's nice how the article points out that antidepressant medications aren't the only way to improve the levels uh, of this biomarker BDNF that exercise does it too. Uh, I find this intriguing. This may be a way of uh, helping women decide, well, if my BDNF levels are good enough, then maybe I don't need to take that antidepressant during pregnancy and spare my child the exposure. Or, on the other hand, let's say they're very low a regimen of exercise does not increase them sufficiently and therefore uh, justifies or adds more confidence to the decision to add antidepressant medication in order to improve those levels. Uh, clearly, they need to do a lot more research. The sample size in this study was much too small, only 139 women. Um, so hopefully this will be replicated with larger sample sizes and uh, very interesting, yet puzzling, why the racial disparity. Perhaps they'll be able to find that out as well. Uh, but importantly, that points out that as far as using this as a clinical laboratory test, race would definitely have to be taken into account. All right, we're going to be right back with more mental health news. After this break, you're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you 
or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. It's that time of year again. If you suffer from itchy eyes, sneezing, a constant runny nose, sinus headaches, or an increase in asthma symptoms, and you're tired of using allergy medicine, maybe it's time to stop putting a Band-Aid on the problem. Peachtree ENT Center believes in treating the problem instead of masking the symptom. We are pleased to offer an innovative alternative that can free you from this routine. Sublingual immunotherapy is a safe, easy, and effective way to treat allergies to food and environmental allergens for you and your family. Imagine placing drops under your tongue to treat allergies. No shots, no office visits with time off from work, and freedom from needing daily allergy medication. Just think, next year, you can actually enjoy being outdoors. About an hour of your time is all it takes to change the quality of your life. Remember... Peace Street ENT Center is where patient care counts. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And next up, if uh, there are those of you out there who have uh, older adults for parents or grandparents, uh, this is something that you want to listen up about. Turns out that <clears throat> a University of Georgia study finds that older adults suffering from multiple chronic health conditions and depression are nearly five times as likely to be problem drinkers as this, those with the same conditions and no depression. This study is the first to document the connection between having multiple chronic illnesses, depression, and alcohol use in seniors. This information could help healthcare providers identify which older adults are most likely to experience problem drinking and lead to better preventative care for this segment of society. The study was conducted by researchers from the University of Georgia School of Social Work, and it utilized data from the National Social Life, Health, and Aging Project, a nationwide survey of older adults that is funded by the National Institutes of Health. Researchers looked at more than 1,600 individuals aged 57 to 85 who identified as active alcohol consumers. Among problem drinkers, or individuals who reported a high amount of negative consequences associated with alcohol use, the researchers found that more than half, 66%, reported having multiple chronic health conditions, and 28% reported having symptoms of depression. The researchers also found that older adults who experienced multiple chronic health conditions combined with depression were those who experienced the highest likelihood of problem drinking. These findings suggest that effective training in screening and referral for mental health and alcohol use issues for health care providers of older adults may better serve 
the approximate 4 million older adults who currently experience problem drinking in the United States. Previous efforts to prevent and manage disease in older adults have focused on a single disease at a time. Few physicians consider the combination of multiple chronic conditions in connection with depression as a potential sign for increased alcohol misuse, although screening and follow-up counseling for behavioral problems is known to help. There is sufficient evidence that even brief interventions delivered in medical-related settings can have a positive influence on reducing problem drinking among most older adults. These interventions can include screening for signs of depression in individuals with long-term health problems, engaging the individual in a conversation about the risks of problem drinking, and providing a referral for brief alcohol-related treatment. The study called Problem Drinking and Depression in Older Adults with Multiple Chronic Health Conditions was published in the October issue of the Journal of the American Geriatrics Society. The take-home point being that in older adults who have multiple chronic health conditions, think things like heart disease, diabetes, and so on, who also suffer from depression, they are at significant risk for problem drinking. Uh, there needs to be heightened uh, rates of screening among health care providers in that population, and uh, families and caregivers also need to have heightened awareness of this issue. Next up on Psychiatry Today, a study about the combination of a chronic health issue with a chronic mental health issue or psychiatric disease. Researchers have found that schizophrenia in and of itself could directly increase the risk of diabetes. This is significant because up until now, it, is, uh, it has widely been thought that diabetes um, in this population would most likely be caused by it being a common side effect of the antipsychotic medications that sufferers of schizophrenia take. But um, again, the study found that people with early schizophrenia are at an increased risk of developing diabetes even when the effects of antipsychotic drugs and amounts of diet and uh, degree of exercise are taken out of the equation. The researchers who did the analysis are from King's College, London. Schizophrenia is known to be associated with a reduced life expectancy of up to 30 years. This is largely due to physical health disorders such as heart attack or stroke for which type 2 diabetes is a major risk factor. People with long-term schizophrenia are three times more likely than the general population to have diabetes, something which has previously been attributed to poor diet and exercise habits in this group, as well as the use of antipsychotic medication. Published in 
Journal of the American Medical Association Psychiatry, this new study examined whether diabetes risk is already present in people at the onset of schizophrenia before antipsychotic medications have been prescribed and before a prolonged period of illness that may be associated with poor lifestyle habits, such as poor diet and sedentary behavior, that in and of themselves are risk factors for diabetes. The researchers pooled data from 16 studies comprising 731 patients with a first episode of schizophrenia and 614 people from the general population. They analyzed blood tests from these studies and found that patients with schizophrenia showed higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes compared with healthy controls. Specifically, the patients had higher levels of fasting blood glucose, which is a clinical indicator of diabetes risk. The higher the glucose in your blood, the more likely you are to have diabetes, as the body cannot efficiently remove glucose into cells where it can be used as fuel. They also discovered that compared with healthy controls, patients with first-episode schizophrenia had higher levels of insulin and increased levels of insulin resistance, again supporting the notion that this group were at higher risk of developing diabetes. These results remained significant even when analyses were restricted to studies where patients and controls were matched for dietary intake, the amount of regular exercise they engaged in, and ethnic background. This suggests that the results were not wholly driven by differences in lifestyle factors or ethnicity between the two groups and may therefore point towards schizophrenia's direct role in increasing risk of diabetes. The researchers highlight several factors that could increase the likelihood of developing both conditions, including shared genetic risk and evidence of shared developmental risk factors, such as premature birth and low birth weight. It is also thought that the stress associated with developing schizophrenia, which sees levels of the stress hormone cortisol rise, may also contribute to a higher risk of diabetes. <coughs> cortisol being the chief stress hormone uh, does increase resistance to insulin. The mortality gap between people with schizophrenia and the general population is growing, and there is a need for novel approaches to halt this trend. This study highlights the importance of considering physical health at the onset of schizophrenia and calls for a more comprehensive approach to its management, combining physical and mental health care. The findings tell us that people with early schizophrenia have already started down the road to developing diabetes, even if they haven't been diagnosed with diabetes yet. 
Given that some antipsychotic drugs may increase the risk of diabetes further, uh, the researchers uh, uh, propose that clinicians have a responsibility to select an appropriate antipsychotic at an appropriate dose. The results also suggest that patients should be given better education regarding diet and physical exercise, monitoring, and where appropriate early lifestyle changes and treatments to combat the risk of diabetes. These findings are a wake-up call that there is a need to rethink the link between diabetes and schizophrenia and start prevention right from the onset of schizophrenia. It is a case of thinking mind and body right from the start. So rather than see development of diabetes during schizophrenia as a consequence of the drugs used to treat it, uh, hopefully this research will lead to uh, doctors in general and psychiatrists in particular to understand that the disease itself puts these patients at risk for diabetes and preventative measures need to be taken right away, uh, <clears throat> such as better education as well as diet and exercise. Now, as to the author's assertion that there should be selection of an appropriate antipsychotic medication at an appropriate dose, uh, I think that statement ignores the reality that most, uh, if not all, antipsychotic medications may increase the risk of diabetes, and yet uh, a patient may only respond to one or two, uh, thus still putting them at risk of the, of the side effects of the medication in terms of risk of diabetes. There also needs to be better attention among primary care physicians to take care of mental health patients in general. Well, that's going to wrap it up for tonight's show. Hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week until we get together again next time. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night. And thanks. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.